Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to get there in just a couple minutes. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to talk for a few minutes, and you're actually going to think, has he forgotten to to read the Scripture? No, I haven't, I promise. We're going to get there. Matthew 18. The title of the message today is Behaving Biblically in a Cancel Culture. Behaving biblically in a cancel culture. And so in your bulletin, you do have a little handout. You can fill in some blanks, take some notes. <clears throat> I enjoy watching hockey. Uh, Stanley Cup playoffs are going on right now. And we don't have a team in, in Houston any longer. Uh, they're somewhere in Iowa, I believe. Um, but we do have the Dallas Stars who are in the Western Conference Finals. And I'm telling you more than you want to know, I'm sure. See, I grew up playing soccer, and hockey lets the players do all the things they wish they could do in soccer, and it's not legal. Um, And they also give you a stick um, to hit people with. Now, you're not really supposed to hit them with the stick, but, you know, if nobody's looking, you can hit them with the stick. And so so hockey has been very different this year because of COVID-19, as a lot of sports have been. They decided to have all the teams split up, and they played in what's called a hockey bubble. Uh, All the Eastern teams would play in Toronto, so they all were in hotels in Toronto, and they played in Toronto's arena. All the Western Conference teams hung out in Edmonton, Canada. These are cities in Canada, just in case you don't know. uh, Hockey's really big up there. Um, But so all the Western Western teams uh, were in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And they played there. They only left their hotels to eat, practice, and play hockey. No outside contact, no family visits, uh, no, no fellowship, no parties, nothing. Uh, in order to keep all the players isolated and healthy during the Stanley Cup competition, everyone had to abide by these rules so there were no outbreaks during the playoffs. <clears throat> and as with most sports these days... Every hockey game has typically three people uh, that work the game, and you'll hear them talk from time to time. You've got the play-by-play commentator, you've got the color commentator, and you have a reporter that's down on the ice level listening to what the coaches and players have to say. These commentators talk the entire hockey game. So for about two hours, they're sharing their insights and their opinions. And over the days, weeks, months, and years of a career spent as a commentator, they're bound to say something that strikes people the wrong way. They're going to have an opinion. For instance, in a recent game, one commentator was talking about the advantage of playing in the bubble, and he said this, and I quote, if you think about it, it's a terrific environment with regard to If you enjoy playing and enjoying being with your teammates for long periods of time, it's a perfect place. Then the color commentator said, he's a former hockey coach, uh, he said, there's not even any woman here to disrupt your concentration. Now, he's no stranger to controversial statements, but this comment was clearly not appropriate. He might have been referring to the wives of players and domestic disagreements that can distract players' concentration. He might have been referring to women who come to the hockey rink and behave inappropriately, exposing themselves. 
in during the game and, and uh, distract players. He might have been referring to so-called snow bunnies who try to flirt with players before and after the games. So while his statement was inappropriate, at least without offering any further qualification of what he meant, no one was willing to let him explain what he said. Ten words came out of his mouth, and the reaction was to fire him. NBC took him off the air. Now, this introduced hockey fans to cancel culture. Cancel culture or call-out culture is a form of a boycott in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles. If they say or do something that is illegal, uh, immoral, unethical, or even if it's simply something that people don't agree with, they are canceled. And the person we disagree with can lose their job, lose their income, uh, lose their influence, etc. It seems to me if you, if you spend time on social media, spend time on the internet or reading the news, that, that everybody seems to be outraged about something. We can go from calm to livid in the length of time it takes us to read a headline. For those who are on Facebook, we see things, we read things, we share things that elicit some very strong opinions and emotional responses. We get angry and we think that we have a right to vent, that we have a right to confront people directly or in the South, passive aggressively on our Facebook page. If somebody says something we disagree with, whether it was a true statement or just their opinion, we often close our ears to them. We're not willing to listen to anyone else's opinion. Because we live in a culture where opinions are treated as facts. We live in a culture where opinions are treated as facts. Where a person's opinion is just as important as someone else's facts. It's not about the truth anymore. It's about how I feel. And how I feel is just as valid and important as your facts. If what I say bothers how you feel, well, that just won't work. We live in a cancel culture where our gut reaction is to get somebody fired if they say something we don't like. You show up to McDonald's and you want an Egg McMuffin at 1101. I'm sorry. Now they've, they make concessions because they, their employees got yelled at all the time because people wanted breakfast at 11.01. I'm sorry. The breakfast menu stops at 10.59. It's two minutes. Make that Egg McMuffin for me. I'm sorry. We can't do that. And people will go crazy. I want my Egg McMuffin, and I want it now. And we get so angry about things when somebody says something we don't like or we disagree with. Your watch is fast. It's 10.59, and we know we set it back just a couple minutes so that we could show them and make a point. But we've completely lost the ability as Christians to have biblical confrontation over things. Confrontation is not wrong. Confrontation is not unbiblical. But we can absolutely confront someone in a wrong way and an unbiblical way. And when we do that, Though our offense may be valid, we've become just as wrong as they were because we didn't do it in the right and biblical way. 
I became the interim pastor here on November 1st, 2017, taking over when the former pastor resigned. And for nearly three years, I've been responsible for preaching and teaching every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night. Most lead pastors preach only about 30 to 35 Sundays a year. I preach 50. Most lead pastors do not lead, uh, do not teach on Wednesday nights. They have a staff member that, that does that. I do, teaching about 35 Wednesdays a year. So each year, I preach and teach 85 messages, which means that over the course of my time here at Friendship Church, I have preached about 240 to 250 messages. The law of averages tells us I'm bound to say something that strikes you in the wrong way. Sometimes it's an unscripted moment. I think for those of you that have been here for a while, you remember the time when I was the interim pastor and a your mama joke came out. All right? I had two hours of sleep. I had been up for four days with the stomach flu. It wasn't in my notes. It was an unscripted moment, and it just came out. Trust me, we all say things we wish we could take back. All right? If you're married, you know there are things that come out of your mouth you wish you could take back, or at least the tone of what you said. You may mean what you said, but the tone might be a little off. Uh, but also, sometimes it's a scripted statement, that's in my notes. It came out right, but you might have taken it wrong. Sometimes it's my pastoral opinion on an issue, and sometimes it's a biblical truth. Preaching is confrontation. It is your pastor trying to push through all the noise, all the lies from media outlets, all the conspiracy theories you find online, all the garbage on the internet to bring you the truth of God's word and to help you maybe see a different perspective of it. Sometimes, as has been the case in 2020, there has been a whole lot for us to discuss and to discern. But understand that your the pastor's role is not to make you feel better. It is to confront you with the truth of God's standard and God's opinions on things as I read it. And it will sting, and from time to time, you might not want to hear it. If a person thinks that preaching should be non-confrontational and pastors should just get up here and make people feel better about themselves, then that person needs to read the Old Testament prophets. Because the prophets constantly badgered God's people because they oppressed foreigners, outsiders, and immigrants. They told them that God was not pleased and would punish them for how they treated others, that they valued themselves more than they valued the lives of others, that they ignored injustices, they ignored the oppression of others, and God would judge them for that. The prophets called out God's people to repent to change their ways, to love their neighbors. What did Israel do? They ran their prophets off. They stoned them or they killed them to keep them from confronting the people with the truth. But silencing the prophet, silencing the pastor doesn't change the truth of God's standard. Just because we don't want to hear the truth doesn't mean that it isn't truth. 
So how do we as Christians confront things in a biblical way? How do we as Christians handle things appropriately and in a way that honors God? So let's make Jesus' words our standard for handling confrontation. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. I'm reading in the ESV. Jesus said this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or three, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, it's so interesting to me. I've, I've been in big churches. I've been in small churches. I've been in uh, all sorts of small group meetings and Bible studies and prayer meetings. And, and it's so interesting that that the last statement Jesus makes about two or three gathered in my name is often used when nobody shows up to an event we thought more people would show up to. If we have a prayer meeting and only two people are there, and sometimes it was Pastor Luke and me, and we were the only ones that showed up for a prayer meeting, or sometimes maybe a third person would walk in, and, and they would say, well, pastor, where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus promised to be with them. Yes, he did, but you have to understand the context of what that was about. It was actually about biblical confrontation, that when we do things the right way, the biblical way, that Jesus is involved in the conversation. The two or three gathered in my name is actually about confronting someone. It's about confronting sin. It's about confronting error. It's about uh, dealing with uh, our people in the church and, and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in a biblical way. It is not intended to be a reference to a small group prayer meeting. And yes, he's with us always. So we don't have to quote this scripture when only two people show up to our small group because he's with us always. Jesus' standard and method is the gold standard. His way should be our way of handling things. So what did Jesus say about handling confrontation? Number one, we confront sin, not differences of opinion. Folks, if you get on Facebook and you decide that, that on Monday from 8 to 5, you are going to just troll Facebook and spend all day long correcting every person that says something wrong your blood pressure will go through the roof. It is unhealthy. Some of you, and trust me, I love debate. Debate was my favorite class in high school. I loved it. I live for it. And my wife has to repeatedly remind me it's not fruitful. Nobody ever changes their mind on Facebook. When they shoot their mouth off, they don't want to hear anybody else's opinion. They've already convinced themselves of their opinion, and you bringing facts to an opinion argument is not helpful. And they don't want to hear it. 
And so it's, it's fine to discuss and it's fine to debate. And we need to get back to civil discourse. It's important that we're willing to see things from other people's point of view. But confrontation is actually about when, when, it's not about when people have an opinion that we don't share. Biblical confrontation is about confronting sin in someone else's life. If there's no sin to confront, then there's no need to have confrontation. If I've sinned against you, then there's a need for biblical confrontation. If I said something that you disagree with or you have a difference of opinion on, then let's discuss. Let me hear your opinion. I'll share my opinion. And we can be loving brothers and sisters in Christ with differences but still in unity. So we confront sin, not differences of opinion. And you even need to be careful how you confront sin, which Jesus tells us how. Number two, Jesus said, if confrontation is necessary, do it privately. If confrontation is necessary, we do it privately. This is one aspect that Christians seem to struggle with. Because social media gives us an outlet to the world to let everybody know our thoughts. It's so easy to have keyboard courage where we can vent to others on the internet since we're not doing it face-to-face. And have you ever been, for those of you that are on social media, have you ever been on social media and you were, you, you, somebody was upset with you and you knew they were upset with you and so they posted something and it didn't call you out, but you kind of knew they were talking about you. And you go, oh, you just get even more angry. You know, we can vent through keyboard courage, instead of actually doing confrontation face-to-face. Jesus never commanded us to publish our problems with people. He told us that we should meet with people privately to address our concerns. Out of my 240 or so messages in the past three years, there will, I'm sure, there have been sermons or teachings that you might have disagreed with. And that's okay. We can still be friends and disagree on matters. Now, if I'm guilty of false teaching, that's one thing. But if it's just a comment I made that rubbed you the wrong way, folks, it's bound to happen. There have been people, there have been times that where people have come to me to discuss something I said, and they did it in a biblical way. They came to me, and we discussed privately. I listened to what they had to say. I shared my thoughts and provided additional insight as to why I said what I did or what I meant or didn't mean by the statement. We might not have ended the conversation in 100% disagreement, but I greatly respected them for doing things the biblical way. If I have a problem with you, would it be appropriate for me to talk to everyone else but you about it? Wouldn't that offend you? Wouldn't it feel like I was gossiping or talking behind your back? Of course you would be upset because that's exactly what I would be doing. So why is it okay for some people to do that, do the same thing about their pastor? Why is it okay for a church member to talk to other people about the problems they have with me? The answer is it's not okay. It's unbiblical, it's inappropriate, and it directly contradicts the teachings of Jesus on this issue. If confrontation is absolutely necessary, you do it privately with the person you have the issue with first. Number three, 
If the offender rejects confrontation, take a friend. If the offender rejects confrontation, take a friend. There are some people who just refuse to listen. They don't want to hear about the sin in their life or the unbiblical thing that they believe. They've made their minds up. They're committed to their cause. They're committed to their lifestyle, their sin, whatever. And nothing and no one will ever change their opinion. And when someone, this is a brother or sister, this is not an outsider, this is not a sinner. When a brother or sister in Christ refuses to listen to godly biblical confrontation on a sin or error, then you take a friend that will help mediate the issue. Notice this isn't when they refuse to cave to your opinion. This isn't when a person fails to agree with you. This is when a brother or sister in Christ refuses to acknowledge their own sinful situation. That's when you take someone. And it's not to gang up on them. Because, I mean, we like to do that too. Hey, you know, you agree with me. Come here. Let's, let's get this guy. You know, or, or you comment and then all your buddies who see things your way put, come, yeah, 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 this guy's wrong. He's crazy. Facts are messed up. Old news. So we don't take a friend with us to gang up on them. We take a friend with us to keep things from being too heated, to help mediate, to keep things from getting combative or out of hand. This third person should be a calming voice so that issues are addressed appropriately. Not one of those, yeah, get him, stick it to him. Show him who's boss. Number four, if the offender still rejects conviction over their sinful situation, you take it to the church. If you've ensured that your issue is not a difference of opinion but is error or sinful in nature... Once you've attempted loving confrontation privately and they refuse to repent of their error or sin, and only after you've taken a brother or sister in Christ to the person and that attempt failed as well, only after all of that do we involve more than one or two people on the issue. If you do this out of Jesus' order, you are wrong. Even if your concern is warranted and justified, you're in the wrong. If you talk to somebody else before you talk to the person who offended you or sinned against you, you've disobeyed Christ's commands on how to handle confrontation. And this is why. Because the goal for biblical confrontation is reconciliation, not cancellation. Let me say it again. The goal for biblical confrontation is reconciliation, not cancellation. If your desire is to get someone fired because, they, because you disagree with something they said, you disagree with a political position they hold, you disagree with an opinion they have, then you're, you're in the wrong. Even if they're wrong, you're wrong too. And what did our parents always tell us? Two wrongs don't make a right. You've also, you may have also heard the expression, you don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. You just have to want to go in the same direction. You don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. You just have to want to go in the same direction. In this church, there are Democrats, there are Republicans, there are moderates, progressives, liberals, and conservatives. But none of that defines who we are. 
We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. The minute we slap some other label on a fellow Christian is the minute that we've started judging one another and stopped obeying the words of Christ to love our neighbor. I love every one of you, even if we don't see eye to eye on issues. If you had to be 100% in agreement with someone on every issue before you love them, no one would ever get married. And no one would ever stay married. It is possible to love someone and disagree with them. We're commanded to love our neighbors, not indoctrinate them into our political or ideological way of thinking. If we talk more about politics than Christ, we're demonstrating we have a problem. We're demonstrating we have an idol in our life. Dr. Emerson Egerix wrote a book entitled Before You Hit Send and encouraged people to answer four questions before sending that email, having that confrontation, or posting a self-righteous or passive-aggressive post on social media. Because if you've ever worked in the corporate world, you have a person who refuses to read your emails where you answer the question you know they're going to ask, so you answer it, and you send the email, and then they reply, hey, did you consider this? And it's in your email, and you really have to bite your tongue because you want to say, read below, because you answered it. But you understand that that's probably not the best thing. You don't want to get written up, or you don't want to be that guy, even though you really want to be that guy some days. So Dr. Emmerich uh, Egerich uh, said, before you hit send, before you reply, before you confront somebody, if you're going to confront somebody, you need to answer these four questions. Number two, and, and you may have heard these before. I don't think all of them are original with him. Number, number one is, is it true? Is it true? There are times when our outrage is thoroughly justified, but there are times when it isn't. And we are bombarded by fake news stories on the left and on the right. Sometimes we are really quick to be outraged about a story from our preferred media outlet. The problem that the problem that exists today is much of the news today is really just editorial. It's some commentator giving their opinion on the news. Very few news programs are actually reading headlines these days. They're just that person's or that outlet's opinions on what is going on. In my gym, I'm on the second floor where all the treadmills are, and in front of me are two screens. And I wish to Jesus that I could figure out what, what, what brand they are so I could bring my own remote and turn them both off. Because one is on CNN and one is on Fox News. And they literally are covering the same story and the slant of their headline and their position and opinion is quite interesting. It's actually not giving me facts anymore. It's giving me their opinion on the fact. And I don't want their opinion. I just want the facts. Tell me what literally happened. We are bombarded by all of this editorialized news. 
and its opinions on information. And I can give you plenty of examples how every single media outlet does it. They're not on television to give you unbiased information. They're on TV to get viewers through shocking news stories that makes you want to turn in, which generates advertising revenue, which generates more money for them and their network. So before you confront something, someone, before you post something, do yourself and everybody else a favor and just do some fact-checking. Is it actually true? Is every word in that headline true? Because, I mean, clickbait these days is ridiculous. You'll never believe what Chip and Joanna Gaines do behind the scenes of Fixer Upper. Like, well, I, I think they're good Christian people. I, what do they do? Click. They pray with their people on their show. I'm like, oh, give me a break. <laughs> they give things away. They go to church. Give me a break. But there's so much clickbait out there, and you just get sucked in. What do they do? What is this about? Is it true? Number two, is it kind? Is it kind? It seems like a very American thing to do to give somebody a piece of my mind as we shake our fist in the air. But there are times when confrontation will lead to offense. That offense will lead to hurt, anger, bitterness, strife, division. Is that how the church is supposed to operate? If we're going to confront someone, we have to learn how to confront someone kindly. My wife often reminds the family that kindness costs you nothing. So if you have preteens and teenagers, that's a good thing to remember. Kindness costs you nothing. You need to drill that in their head. Because it takes way less effort and stress to be kind to someone rather than being confrontational and belligerent. There are times when tough truths need to be shared and confrontation absolutely needs to take place. But if it's not true and if it's not kind, then you shouldn't do it. And again here, the goal is reconciliation and unity. A church with people of different races, different backgrounds, different political leanings, different ideologies can still be in unity as long as they're working towards the same goal. What is our goal? To know Christ and to make him known. That's the church's mission. It's in the Bible. And if your mission is something else, then you're not living biblically. You're not in obedience with Scripture. And you need to surrender what you want to what he has commanded. Number three. So is it true? Is it kind? Number three. Is it necessary? Ecclesiastes 3.7, it's a good scripture for you to underline. It reminds us there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. We get that second part down really good. We think every time is a time to speak, but Ecclesiastes reminds us there is a time to be silent. 
Yes, in matters of error and sin, it is absolutely appropriate for us to speak up and to confront the person. But sometimes we can have a strong opinion about something that has nothing to do with error or sin. So it's better for us to just keep silent. Bringing the matter up is outside of Jesus' guidance on confrontation and will only create division and disunity. When I was in high school, I went to Westbury High School. I don't know if you know anything about Westbury High School, but it was rough. We'll use that adjective. It was rough back then. And uh, there were fights regularly. That, that was our uh, lunch entertainment on a regular basis. We'd just eat sandwiches and go, thank God that's not me. Thank, thank you, Lord. I'm not getting my, my face punched. Um, and so I would see, because there were fights on, on a regular basis, you'd see this guy, he'd, sometimes he'd be held back by his friends. And he wanted to punch somebody's lights out. But his friends were holding on to his shirt or, or physically preventing from engaging the conflict. And, you know, sometimes, you know, he'd be like, come on, man, let me at him, let me at him. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When God is trying to keep you from getting into a conflict that you don't need to be in, he is trying to hold you back. And it definitely makes us feel better to vent. Makes us better to shoot our mouths off, to yell at someone, to give them a piece of our minds. But if we look back over a lot of frustration and, and broken friendships and relationships, Sometimes it was self-induced because we picked an unnecessary fight. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And number four, is it clear? Is it clear? When we go to confront someone, are we being clear? Are we communicating clearly? Are we dealing with the issues and not feelings? Are we dealing with the facts of the matter as opposed to how we feel about the matter? Dr. Egerich's in his book, he wrote that when he was a boy, he had a Dalmatian uh, dog. And, uh, you know, stereotypically, Dalmatians were at firehouses, you know, uh, fire departments. And so when he got this Dalmatian, he named the dog Fire. That was perfectly fine. Until one day, the dog got out of the yard. And so he ran up and down the streets of his neighborhood yelling, Fire! 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 A neighbor ran outside and yelled back at him, where? He shouted, I don't know. She asked again, where's the fire? He said, I don't know. I'm looking for him. She said, him? What are you talking about? And he said, fire. My dog is lost. Shortly thereafter, his parents named, made him change the dog's name to Flyer. Slightly less concerning and panic-inducing in a neighborhood. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he gave them some strongly worded pastoral guidance. And people within the Corinthian church were offended by some of the things that he said. Thus, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in response to their offense. He had to explain what he meant by what he, he had to explain what he meant by what he wrote. And we still have to do that on a regular basis. Have you ever sent a text message to your spouse? And it, right after you sent it, 
you were pretty sure, and maybe you had had a bit of a disagreement this, that morning, and you're, 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 they asked you a question, and your text message was short. Sure. Okay. Whatever. And after you send it, you're like, yeah, they're probably going to get upset. They're probably going to take that the wrong way. Because in a text message or an email, you never think about how it reads to the other person. You can't hear a person's tone of voice in writing. So you don't know if they're being innocently honest or if they're being snarky and sarcastic. And trust me, I used to assume everybody was being snarky and sarcastic. And that created quite a few confrontations. When I'd say, you don't have to be so rude. And they're like, I literally was not rude. There's literally nothing I said that you could, why are you offended? What, what, are, the, what are you talking about? So instead, just err on the side of assuming people are not being that way and they're just being innocent. If confrontation is absolutely necessary, make sure your concerns are clear. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it clear? Deal with the facts. Don't deal with opinions. You said this. Can you please explain what you meant by that? It was a time when I was in uh, pastoring a previous church and in the hallway, I was just kind of walking through, and uh, one of the ladies in the church made a statement, and I got angry because I thought it was very rude. And But I learned a lesson early on, and I said, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And when I repeated her words back to her, her response was, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't mean it like that. You see, if I had reacted to what I thought she meant, then I would have been wrong. If I'd have said, well, you don't even tithe. Yeah, exactly. You don't even show up to church regularly. How in the world, I mean, how incredibly offensive that would have been to someone to say that just because I got my feelings hurt. But when I made her restate what she said, I realized there was no cause for offense. So I didn't have to apologize. She could, she could clarify, and we were all good. But if I'd have shot my mouth off because I thought I knew what she meant to say, I would, I'd be the bad guy. And man, I, that would not be a good day. <laughs> that would not be a good day. I actually saw... This old school church back in the 80s, it had a banner. It says, will a man rob God, Malachi 3.8. And it was a list of all the non-tithers that attended church. I'm like, wow. I mean, do they show up at your house and shake you down? Do you, some churches, they, they actually, uh, some churches make Members, if you're going to be a legit voting member, you have to submit your tax documents at the end of the year so they can see if you actually gave 10% of your income. So if you think our membership requirements are challenging, you should belong to one of those churches. <laughs> Giving somebody an opportunity to explain themselves often lets us see that for many instances we're offended for no reason. Or at least it lets us know that confrontation is not necessary because the issue is not related to biblical error or sinful practices. 
You just you, you discover that when you listen to somebody, when you know somebody's heart, when you know what they stand for, when you know the character of the individual and something strikes you the wrong way, it becomes a lot easier to, to make the assumption, I, I probably misunderstood what was said. And it gives you the opportunity to save a relationship rather than to uh, destroy one. I'll ask our worship team to come up. I know you're probably like, man, we were expecting, expecting a different kind of message this morning, and that's okay. Sometimes we have to deal with things, you know, it's so easy for us to be sucked into the world's way of doing things that we have to periodically look at how do we behave, how do we come apart, come out from among them, how do we be separate when we are on Facebook, when we're on Instagram, when we're uh, talking to people and we share these very different opinions than some people do, how do we continue to engage people in a loving and uh, helpful way? Guys, there, there will be plenty of opportunities to be upset over something somebody says or does. It can just rub us the wrong way. They can use a phrase that we interpret one way and they interpret another. And our media has done a lot to stoke the flames of discord and division between people. We have to get back to a biblical way of living and a biblical way of conduct. The Bible is our standard. It is our guide. It is our rule book for daily living. If we are Christians and we do not let the Bible be our guide on these issues, then we will never be obedient to what God commanded us. Christians need to pick up their Bibles at least as much as they pick up their TV remotes or their phones. And I know some of you are like, well, my Bible is my phone, so loophole. I'm just saying, where your treasure is, your heart is. Whatever you treasure is what you love, what you truly love. And at the day of judgment... God will not ask you how many headlines you can recite, how many funny memes you shared, how many shows you binge watched on Netflix, or how many arguments you won on social media. He'll want to know how well you know him. And we know him and we know his heart through the word of God. As people of God, we must confront the truth of God's standard versus where we are living and what we are doing. Are we living up to his standard? It doesn't matter how angry that person made you. It doesn't matter the incorrect or rude things they said. It doesn't matter that you have the perfect response to their argument. What matters is this. God has a standard for our conduct, for our behavior. It is not open to interpretation. It's easy to understand and it's our responsibility to behave the way Jesus commanded us to behave. When we want to press our opinion, when we want to vent our disagreement, when we want to confront someone on a matter that will not draw anyone closer to Christ, we have to be willing to answer the hard questions. Have I surrendered my will to Christ? Have I surrendered my opinions? 
Have I surrendered my outrage? Have I surrendered my wants and my desires? Have I surrendered all to him? So I've said this before. I said it last week. I may have said it the week before that. He's either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. It's time we lay, our, lay aside our desire for debate and argumentation at the foot of the cross and surrender that to him as well. It's time we lay down our desire to be right when it costs us a relationship. An argument to be won should never be greater than a person to be loved. An argument to be won should never be greater than a person to be loved. Consider that the next time you decide the confrontation is necessary. So that when you do confront someone, you do it in love and you do it the biblical way. Worship team is going to lead us in a final song this morning. And it is our should be our prayer, our goal. Chorus is very familiar. I surrender all. It's not I surrender some. It's not I surrender most. It's I surrender all. All my wants, all my desires, all my, all my outrage, all my opinions, all. Everything, all to him, I surrender.